This Humankind Special Project, The Power of Nonviolence, is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by a major grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. Coming into camp, they may have hated every single person on the other side, just as a matter of course, but the attitude changes significantly, even if they go through three and a half weeks of our intense programming at camp with only one friend from the other side. At an exceptional summer program in Maine, brave teenagers show a way out of the cycle of hatred and violence. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. I've been on an odyssey for this special project, searching for real answers to the disturbing dilemma of violence, a problem that can terrorize a neighborhood or threaten a nation. And because the challenge is so complex, I'm seeking deep solutions, which might actually offer the tools that can make a lasting peace possible. I've been looking for a ray of hope. I found one on a dock at Pleasant Lake in Otisfield, Maine, northwest of Portland, where teenagers in three canoes pushed off for a short outing on a windy summer day. After many years, I was on a return visit to the Seeds of Peace summer camp, where a daring experiment has been going on since 1993. Teenagers come here from opposing sides in regions riddled with conflict. And what they find is a most extraordinary haven where they can meet and talk and get to know each other on neutral turf. These experiences are very essential. My aim is to meet as many new people as possible because I want to make new friends and also I want to know about them, their struggles, their fears, their hopes. Sinead Das Guru, recorded at age 14, is a student from Mumbai, India. He's one of more than 6,000 kids who've been drawn here since Seeds of Peace was founded. They hail from the Middle East, South Asia, Europe, and the U.S. The camp program strives to groom leaders of the future, to impart to them the skills of nonviolent conflict resolution, of listening with civility and respect and empathy, even if you disagree. Pat Bewick, in his mid-twenties, is dressed in the counselor's uniform of a dark green t-shirt. I have a Middle Eastern bunk with eight boys, two Israelis, one Arab Israeli, two Palestinians, and two Americans, and one Jordanian. Could we call that a real powder keg? <laughs> we could, yeah. Um, the first, I can remember the first night there, uh, one of the Palestinians was refusing to sleep above the bu- in the bunk bed with an Israeli, and now there's instances where they're sitting on the same bed playing chess every rest hour, which is a problem for me because I want them to rest during rest hour, but I let it go in the interest of the camp. Of international peace. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's what it's more about. They could play chess, they could talk in that sort of aspect. I'll, I'll let it happen. And that's the magic found here among the 18 lakeside bunks and the playing fields and dining tables at Seeds of Peace. The campers are known as seeds. If merely given an opportunity to meet face-to-face for a few weeks, to live together, eat together, play on the same sports team, 
fresh-faced kids from bitterly polarized countries and sharply divided ethnic groups might actually become friends. During fun time and at formal sessions of structured dialogue, they're asked to communicate in English, the one language they share. At camp here, you will meet people from Gaza. You will meet people here from the West Bank, from Lahore, Pakistan, from Kabul, Afghanistan, from Mumbai, India. Saloni Jayswal, whose parents come from India, lives in Gadsden, Alabama. And it's nearly impossible to have almost 200 campers from all these different places in one field, in one campsite, and to have all these stories at the same time. And so last year at camp, I would just talk to all these different people, learn about their lives, learn about, you know, how their friends were, you know, how life was like, the political situation, the cultural situation. And that really inspired me to learn more about these different conflicts because prior to going to camp, you know, I was, you know, I was affected by the media. I was affected what, by what other people thought. And I really didn't have any, you know, outside contact with people from the Middle East and people from South Asia. I think just the aspect that understanding and being able to open your ears to the other side can make a world of change. Counselor Pat Bewick. These kids come from communities where they're never told the other narrative. They never have access to the other narrative of the conflict. And when you have access to that other narrative and you're able to listen to the other person, to the other narrative, that's where understanding happens. What makes possible a, a willingness and an opportunity to, to hear the other narrative and to consider it? I'd say it's the communal living situation that they're placed in here and the fact that they have to rely on each other for emotional support, for support on the sports field, for support in a music activity. You have one kid keeping the beat, the other kid playing the guitar. They have to rely on each other to make that song happen. It's really amazing what we're doing here. I mean, where else in the world are you going to get Israelis and Palestinians sitting in a room together? And just to have that dialogue and then afterwards to go out and play soccer together and do activities. At the end of the day, what you realize is that we're not so different. The same interests, the same coming of age struggles, and, and it's our future, and it's what we make of it. Lulu Perot is a mediator and education reformer working at Seeds of Peace. She spoke with me at the water's edge. The kids have came with expectations they were going to debate the issues, and we have been kind of giving them opportunities and tools for deeper reflection and learning and sharing. So they asked each other how terrorism had affected their daily lives. And so the first kid from Afghanistan, Seed, I should say, from Afghanistan, shared a story about being kidnapped by the Taliban and how difficult it was at the age of eight to be alone in a room for two weeks and not knowing what would happen to him. And so this kind of created a cascade of participation. All the kids shared their experiences with terrorism and violence and so by the end of our session yesterday 
kids from Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and America were hugging each other and crying and um, left feeling quite connected. So they come, they sit down, they see each other, they realize they're only human, that they have the same challenges, the same joys. Today during rest hour and general swim, we will be having continuing to have meetings for uh, the talent show. So the Israeli delegation and the Egyptian delegation during rest hour, if you would like to be a part of their performance, meet them then. The Palestinian delegation, if you'd like to be a part of that performance during general swim. A group of campers gathered around a small table to discuss the barriers that young people in conflict regions are up against. Here's Firoz Parasnas from India. We are told to see the other country as being one unit or... Um, and usually the decisions which are taken by the government of that country are seen to be taken by everyone in that country. And I'm speaking from my own perspective. Um, so, uh, however, when we come to Seeds of Peace, we realize that it's not always that the people in their own country agree with the decisions taken by their own government, and also to differentiate between the people and the government. I mean, you cannot always blame the people for the decisions the government takes. And that's why it's it's very important for us to also see the the people not as people from the country, but just as fellow human beings who've come to Seeds of Peace with the same ideology of making the world a better place. Uh, at first, I was scared of a dialogue. Noah Ben-Ganlim Deshoni lives in Israel near Tel Aviv. Before I came at first time to camp, I was... Um, I wasn't that uh, talking in dialogues and participating in classes because I was afraid to express myself. It was very intense for me as an Israeli Jew to hear all the stories because um, before we came, I felt like I need to represent Israel and not myself, only my, to represent my country. And then I was hearing stories and people were like kind of attacking me because I was an Israeli Jew and for them I was my government and I was my army and I was the reason for their all suffer. And I felt like I really need to defend my country even though it was like <laughs> I wasn't really agreeing with my government and all the actions. And um, I took a huge step and in the middle of the dialogue session I was just telling all the Palestinians that I'm sick of hearing all the facts because we were keep arguing about the facts of each side because we've been told like different um, facts. So they had been told certain facts by their government, you had been told yeah, other facts by your government. Yeah. We were like fighting over facts and it was not what I came. I came to make friendships with people from the other side and I felt like I'm being attacked and I wanted to defend my country and I never got the chance to tell them that I'm kind of thinking again of all I've been taught before. Like, I, uh, it was the first time that I heard that my army is doing awful things to people in my same age and um, that all the discrimination between the Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs and I felt like I was living in a bubble and it suddenly popped and I didn't know how to react to the thing that I've heard. In the Middle East, accounts of shocking violence come from many directions. British authorities are trying to identify the man who carried out the beheading. We have likely a British citizen 
beheading an American citizen in a Syrian conflict. So when you put it together like that... What is your reaction to these atrocities, these terrible acts of violence, when they are committed against civilians and somebody says that they're doing that on religious grounds. First of all, it makes me so angry. Laiba Ahmed was raised Muslim in Lahore, Pakistan. Because, like, these people, they claim to be Muslims, right? But they're not actually. Like, Islam tells you not to take innocent lives, right? And these people do it, and they, they use religion only when it benefits them, and they misinterpret it. And then the whole world's, like, people start thinking that Muslims are bad, and people start, you know, like, having, like like thinking badly about like a whole sect and it's unfair and it's not right for people to go around like killing innocents and saying that you know yeah we're doing it because god wants us to because god doesn't uh, in my in my opinion i don't think god wants you to do that and like you're just like ruining my religion like my religion you're ruining the like like you're hold on ruining the name of my religion and you're just like you're it's like you're staining it you're staining it in front of the entire world in my first year, uh, the dialogues were mainly, like, were only about the conflict. Ragged Khalife is from Nazareth, Israel. She grew up in a Christian community, says her father is agnostic, her mother Muslim. For herself, Ragged told me she finds it difficult to identify with any particular religion. She enjoys studying science. It's, like, very interesting to see both sides present the facts they, they've known, and, like, in, in a sense, a fact is a fact. It doesn't change from one side to another. But the facts were extremely different, and it was very hard, like, for one side to accept the other facts, the things they've, like, they've spent their whole life denying, I think. Um, dialogues were very heated, like, very angry, very emotional. But the group also reached a point where even though you don't really identify with this specific fact, uh, you know that this person has a story, they have a life, and they just let it be. Your attitude becomes let it be, let them have their story? Um, your attitude becomes uh, more of like they more compassionate and empathetic towards the other side's pain, the other side's history, uh, instead of just like trying to defend your own side. You're listening to The Power of Nonviolence, a special project from Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. To learn more about Seeds of Peace and the Art of Dialogue to Defuse Conflict, and to obtain audio copies or downloads of the series, please visit humanmedia.org. Today, Seeds of Peace maintains a vibrant presence in Maine, where current and former campers participate in activities to improve local race relations. And former campers connect abroad, where they may join together to walk through cities or to visit holy places like the Western Wall in Jerusalem. The project began in a moment of deep anguish about another eruption of violence emanating from conflict in the Middle East. I 
actually thought of Seeds of Peace, uh, the whole concept, back in 1993 after the World Trade Center bombing in February. It was eight years before the September 11th attacks. A truck bomb was detonated below the North Tower in Manhattan, killing six and injuring over a thousand. The late John Wallach was then foreign editor of the Hearst newspapers, and he was groping for constructive ways to address this long, festering crisis. Where is the answer? Is there anything that exists anywhere in the world that inspires hope? And it seemed to me that uh, when I did a little exploration, uh, I was astonished to find that there was no program anywhere in the world that brought the next generation of countries that were at war uh, together to learn how to make peace. Wallach invited political leaders from Israel, Egypt, and the Palestinian Authority each to send 15 teenagers to the new camp in Maine. But to ensure its independence, Seeds of Peace has always declined funding from the governments in conflict regions and is still supported mostly by charitable donations. Each summer, over 300 campers arrive to discover the lessons of cooperation. Why is it so hard? Wait. Okay. Oh my God. I need some rope. Like, I'm... In this exercise, monitored by nervous staff, Pairs of teenagers wearing safety harnesses and helmets work together so they can both climb up onto a horizontal bar, which is suspended by ropes high above the ground. They then must ascend a vertical bar and proceed to get through two tires, all without falling. The scene did look like a lot of fun. Watching alongside me was Bobby Gottschalk, who co-founded Seeds of Peace with John Wallach and remains on the board. So John and I met um, when he had been invited to our book group locally here in Washington uh, to talk about his book that he had written with Janet Wallach, his wife, called The New Palestinians. After he talked about the book, he said, is there anybody here in this room who would be willing to help me start a new program? And he described a camp program for kids from the Middle East. I, I immediately remembered this experience that I had as a 20-year-old. That's when Bobby was a student at Earlham College, a Quaker school in Richmond, Indiana. It was the height of the Cold War, and students were told if they took Russian language courses, they'd be eligible for a foreign study trip to the Soviet Union, scheduled for the summer of 1962. Now, you know what happened in 1962 was the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it was a very tense time. My grandparents had come from that area of the world and had all escaped from there. Um, because their lives were in danger. So I went with that kind of baggage, as well as the baggage of knowing that the Soviet Union was the enemy of the United States. They were hosted at a camp that seemed very loosely structured, which Bobby found surprising in the heavily regimented Soviet society. We spent 55 days there. We were definitely the only American students in the Soviet Union at that time. We went with our professor, and uh, we started out by going to a two-week camp for the Kiev Polytechnical Institute. 
So we lived in cabins with people our own age who were from the Soviet Union, from the Kiev. And uh, the students there were pretty interested in us. And what they would do to avoid being overheard um, was they would take us out into the Dnieper River and in rowboats and say things like, so what's it like <laughs> to, be, <laughs> to live in the United States? Questions about rock and roll? Yes, and also, do you have any genes? Because they wanted our genes very badly. <laughs> but it was interesting because we discovered that the students in the Soviet Union were afraid of us. And we went over there afraid of them. So that was really amazing. And, and what did you take from that discovery? What did that teach you? Well, it taught me that people are people. And although their governments make pronouncements and threats against other people, the, the people living in the, in the country are just the same as us and just as vulnerable to being threatened and to being made fearful as us. So we actually had a lot in common. And was that kind of a, a mental breakthrough for you? Was that a, a moment that where, that where was. things changed for you? Yes, it was. It was very important for me. And the other thing I realized while I was there was it was very handy for the government to have an enemy because so many trouble th troublesome things were going on in that country. But it took the focus away from that and put it all the way across the world to an enemy. For the Soviet government to identify the United States as its enemy. Yeah, yeah. And I wondered if the same was true for um, the United States at that time. Bobby Gottschalk's journey as a college student over half a century ago to a setting where youth from different sides of a divide broke down barriers helped lay the groundwork for what would develop into the Seeds of Peace camp today. Well, our lives are connected like facets of a jewel, the reluctance of a wise man and the wisdom of a fool. They border on each other, sometimes kind, sometimes cruel. Campers from different lands arriving at Seeds of Peace in Maine face a requirement that many teenagers might ordinarily regard as unthinkable. They're prohibited from using cell phones or going online for almost a month when they're at camp. This is intended to limit distractions so the kids can concentrate on making direct contact with the other campers. It also establishes a kind of sanctuary from the barrage of media influences. The campers talked a good deal about the role of electronic and print media in distorting and aggravating conflict. Firoz Parasnas from Mumbai, India. Something which I would think is seen as a, as a fact and I would say, yes, I mean, this happened in this year. And the thing is that that is what shapes the country. Like, if you feed that type of history, that is what people are going to believe. 
sadly, people are not going to question what is said in the textbook. The, the thing is that um, you, you question the, the meaning of a fact. I mean, who constructs that fact? Who makes the history textbooks? Essential facts are taken out. So many facts are changed. And I'm not only blaming my country, I'm blaming all the countries for this. And I mean, it's so shocking when you say, oh my God, is that the way this event is portrayed in your country? Um, you, you wonder, like, who controls what we believe is true? It's an essential question that pervades so much of world conflict, because especially in our hyper-mediated environment, information is power and can stir people to anger and even violence or can promote peaceful response. Esmat Zirak is from Kabul, Afghanistan. Where I come from, the media is not like not doing a great job of like portraying the other side of Pakistan, and me media in Pakistan is not doing a great job of like portraying <coughs> our side, uh, our country, and it's like they don't hear about our stories, and we don't hear about their stories. And when finally I got to meet, uh, just like everyone said, like meeting Pakistanis in my bunk, in my table, in my dialogue group, talking with them, sharing a talk, a quick boat ride somewhere. It's all amazing. It's like life-changing experience, truly. And at times, like maybe dialogue could be difficult and very challenging at times. Uh, but in the end, it's worth it to let that pain of yourself be heard by someone other than yourself. And it's very relieving in many ways. And also, when you hear others share their pains, their stories, their impressions of your country, uh, you get to know that. And it's like very, very um, different than what I may believe. For teenagers attending Seeds of Peace from other cultures, American softball may be a totally unfamiliar game. Some know the rules of cricket, where if you get a hit, the batter runs toward the pitcher. In softball, they learn, sometimes to comical effect, that they're expected to run to first base. But these kids may be confronting tougher pressures when they return home. They may be greeted coldly for fraternizing with people from the despised other side. Camp co-founder Bobby Gottschalk. So they have to come back and face that. There are a lot of people who just plain don't like the idea of Seeds of Peace. It's more comfortable to just stay um, partisan and you know who you are. You're a certain kind of person. You have a certain kind of religion. You have a certain kind of political view and you have certain kind of uh, goals in life, and um, they don't want uh, to see people changing. So they know they're going to go back and face that. That there will be peer pressure and family pressure? Yeah, yeah. So it's a bit of a bold gesture for them even to be here. Well, they're very brave to come here. Uh, some of them come from communities that are really anti um, everything we stand for, which is that everybody's equal, that everybody needs to be respected and appreciated. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. 
editorial assistance from David Cruz, Ken Rogers, Kathy Graham, Mark Kilstein, and Bond Collard. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. And you can subscribe to our free weekly podcast, Humankind on Public Radio, at iTunes. This segment in our series, The Power of Nonviolence, is Humankind program number 244. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind.